Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Want to learn more about the changing American South? Join us for the SFA's Fall Symposium, October 20th and 21st, here in Oxford, Mississippi. Together, we'll ask the question, where is the South? You'll hear from a roster of engaging speakers, plus you'll eat and drink well. Very well. Tickets are on sale now. Visit southernfoodways.org to learn more. That's who. Listen, Mary Beth, um, what do you hear? I think that really works for her. Mm, the sounds of a dinner party? Are folks eating together, having a meal? Well, yes, but the actual sounds, dishes clattering, knives and forks scraping up food, that's the sound of the plateware. Interesting. But those are the sounds that I associate with meals in movies, TV, or, you know, podcasts. <laughs> Those are the sounds that set the scene and make it clear that we're in a restaurant or a diner. For all their ubiquity and beauty, we don't often pay attention to the plates or bowls under the food we're eating. Not once we've left the department store or the wedding registry behind. (laughs) In this episode, Wilson Sayre takes us to Central North Carolina, where the red clay of the soil is as important to the story of the plate as it is to the food presented on that plate. It's the dirt, Mary Beth. The plate and the food come from the same dirt. (laughs) You're listening to Gravy. 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 I'm Melissa Hall. And I'm Mary Beth Lassiter. A production of the Southern Foodways Alliance, Gravy tells the stories of the changing American South. Wilson Sayer has the story. Mark Hewitt feeds planks of wood into an opening a bit bigger than the size of an album cover. Two pieces now, three pieces a minute later, the fire is ravenous and hot. The high temperature will be 2,375. Hot enough to bake around three tons of clay that are inside this giant wood-fired kiln. It's the size of a school bus, but shaped like an upside-down boat. The scene resembles an archaeological dig site. There's a big wooden shed-like roof built over the kiln. The kiln itself is covered in what looks like red, dusty clay. There's a few small window-like holes down the length of it. And at one end is a tall brick chimney. On the opposite side of the chimney is the small opening where Mark stokes the fire. I try and finesse each cubic inch of kiln. And this is, I mean, the kiln is 1,200 cubic feet. Every part of the kiln has a, a different firing profile. And it's one of the great intellectual challenges. Intellectual challenges of trying to get each one of the hundreds of pots and plates and mugs and vases to turn out how he wants them. If you've ever rotated a cookie sheet mid-bake to account for a hot spot, you know what Mark is talking about. Except there's no rotating an entire kiln mid-fire. So he has to know every cubic foot of this kiln and pack it accordingly. In a fire that's so hot, it melts glass and transforms mud into mugs. The challenge is also physical. He started heating up the kiln three days ago. And when it gets to its highest temperature overnight and into tomorrow morning, 
A team of six people will do this dance of poking burning wood into holes all down the side of the kiln, all to make sure it hits the temperature it needs to transform that lump of clay into a gleaming plate. It's a cross between a marathon and and some strange musical performance or something like a, a huge double bass that takes six people to play and I'm sort of conducting it and it's uh, it's it's capricious it's a beast too it's a it's alive and it's at 2375 degrees and I mean it's madness it's crazy and part of that madness is this three tons of clay on a week-long firing journey there's no redoing it you got to get it right uh, I mean it's half a year's work <laughs> uh. And that gamble doesn't always turn out. Will the kiln get to the right temperature? Will the wood ash fall like the potter hopes? Do any of the pieces contain hidden air pockets? Were they made too thick? The kiln itself expands and contracts. Will it collapse? Any of these things slightly out of whack can destroy everything inside. Even if nothing gets broken, it still might not look like you hoped. This is the beauty and the curse of the potter. You never quite know. I visited Mark at his home and pottery studio just outside of Pittsburgh, North Carolina, a few weeks before they lit the kiln. His 109th firing, he does two or three a year. In this calmer time, he showed me some of his pots, ones that turned out okay. Actually, way better than okay. Museum quality. This is just straight North Carolina clay with no glaze but the salt glaze. And it's got all these, these dappled textures. It's got uh, a little wood ash on it. It's got a peculiar little scar here that's like a beauty, beauty mark. The surface of his pots are all very organic. One of the more common decorations is what's called orange peel, that dappled texture Mark described. It's the effect of a technique called salt glazing, which has become one of the traditional North Carolina looks. At the end of the kiln firing, Mark blows mugfuls of regular old salt into the kiln with a modified leaf blower. The salt eats away at the brown of the clay on the outside and leaves these kind of pockmarks, like the surface of a moon, the craters taking on the beautiful gray-brown of the clay underneath. It kind of reminds me of a pollen-covered sidewalk after a light rain, textured and unpredictable. It's curated chance. Mark grew up in a family that was involved in industrial, or so-called factory pottery, in the UK. But it's the handmade stuff, studio pottery, that grabbed his heart from a young age. It's the use of natural materials and hand production, the kind of work Korean, Japanese, and West African potters have been making for millennia. He came to the States in the early 80s to do an apprenticeship. And while he was here, he toured the country, visiting potters and potteries in North Carolina with his now wife, Carol. I'm a geography major with a geology interest. And so I'd pored over geology maps and had uh, realized that this was a good uh, hunting ground. Hunting ground for clay. Clay from central and western North Carolina can be fired into vessels that are light but strong, a quality that potters covet. And then uh, uh, it was also close to market. If you had people who traveled, people who cared about crafts, 
And, um, you know, a real interest throughout the populace, indeed. I've never been anywhere where so many regular people would say, I just love pottery. And on that first trip to North Carolina, he saw work that amazed him. They were sort of playing with fire and creating these really, really wonderful, rich textures and color combinations. To him, it was like discovering Japanese pottery for the first time. Japanese potters are revered for their work, often firing unglazed pots to highlight the rugged, organic qualities of the clay itself. In Japan, the craft is also deeply integrated into culture, thanks in part to its role in the traditional tea ceremony. And while the North Carolina pots Mark was seeing and falling in love with shared many of those same characteristics, functional pottery in the U.S. doesn't enjoy the same ritual connections it does in Japan, nor the art world cachet. It just blew my mind. It was like, these, these traditions down here weren't really known. I mean, there, was, there weren't any publications. It was like, really? I didn't know about any of this stuff. So what is this stuff in North Carolina that Mark was seeing? The state's pottery traditions all stem from everyday people making practical vessels to eat and preserve food. Crocks, jars, plates, bowls. And those traditions developed into art. Indigenous people were the first to fire pots across the state, dating back to at least the first millennium BCE. Then you have to fast forward, a lot, to the melding of styles that were brought to and then changed in this place. In both North and South Carolina, you can find face jugs, a practice that emerged from enslaved potters decorating jugs with etched and sculpted facial features. In the western foothills of the state, you can find alkaline, also known as ash glazing. That results in finishes that look like melted glass, all drippy and translucent. Salt glazing has coalesced in the central part of the state. That's where you find the town of Seagrove. It's become a kind of mecca for potters who stand on the shoulders of families who made pottery in the area for generations. Today, Seagrove is home to the largest concentration of working potters in the United States. The NC Pottery Center is there. Jugtown, with its own century-long history of the craft, is just a few miles south. And in 1983, an hour east of Seagrove, Mark and his wife Carol started converting an old farm near Pittsburgh into his pottery. In the beautifully redone farmhouse that looks out over a little pond, Mark picks up a copper-brown mug, which he bought from a collector after years of admiring it. It's a mug from maybe the late 1800s that he says represents so much of what North Carolina pottery is to him. This is unsigned probably from Coleridge, but it's got uh, a blowout there where there was a twig that came out. Then if you look at all the texture of the materials, it's like an organic tapestry. It's got a little texture that you feel when you're using it. And it's, it's modest. It's like an, a, a dear old friend. A friend that's almost too precious to use as a mug. It, it's too special for me to risk. It's one of the sad things about even the work that I make. I know some people buy it and use it, but other people think it's too valuable to use. And I, I sort of complain that it's, it's a bit like buying a car and not driving it. Mark really wants people to use his work. It's part of what makes pottery special. Yeah, I mean, they're missing out completely. It's like a love offering. It's like, this is my gift. This is what I... I do full-heartedly all the time. I mean, 
24-7. I'm dreaming and scheming and making. Mark says a person's hand is equal to that of a museum. Their cup holder or table is a perfectly worthy venue for art. What better way to use a plate than to put food on it? Some slices of ripe summer tomato or a handful of strawberries in a bowl. It adds to that full pottery experience. But that's only an experience someone gets to have if the pot makes it out of the kiln. When we come back, we'll peek inside the kiln with our fingers crossed. For over 125 years, Lodge has been crafting quality cookware in South Pittsburgh, Tennessee. It started with the iconic Lodge cast iron skillet made for cooking anything anywhere, and then turned to the seasoned cast iron Dutch oven and camp ovens. Now, Lodge is making history with USA Enamel, the only line of colorful enameled cast iron made in the United States. And like all Lodge cast iron cookware, USA Enamel is designed to last for generations. Visit LodgeCastIron.com to purchase your own USA Enamel Dutch oven. For Lodge's longtime commitment to the Southern Foodways Alliance and this podcast, we thank them. Hi, it's Melissa. And if you're looking for another great podcast from the South, then you have to check out No Small Endeavor, produced by our friends at Great Feeling Studios and PRX. Each episode, award-winning professor and Nashville native Lee C. Camp merges the worlds of philosophy, theology, the arts, and more to ask the question, how can we live a good life while nourishing the soul? Plus, it's the only show I know that features everyone from legendary actor and filmmaker Rob Reiner to Southern activist and author Anthony Ray Hinton. So go ahead. Follow No Small Endeavor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And tell them Gravy said hey. Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. To get a piece of pottery that can be used and that people want to buy it's actually not all that easy. Potters don't start with something that's inherently useful. It isn't like a chef cooking with a carrot, which, you know, tastes pretty good on its own. Potters are starting with the stuff you wash off that carrot. A lump of clay. So the first thing I want to do is center the clay. Dolores Farmer is a potter in Durham, North Carolina. She's showing me how she makes a mug with one of her signature looks, a finish that resembles tree bark. I'm coning it, which means I'm stretching it and making kind of this triangle shape on the wheel. A pound of clay spins smoothly between her hands as she pushes them together, which lifts the clay, and then squishes it back down. I don't know if you ever iced a cake. And so your hands are like the spatula on the side, trying to smooth out the edges and the bumps and inconsistencies on the clay to make it nice and smooth. Then she pokes a hole down the middle of that cylinder of clay and pulls out transforming the clay from a kind of puck shape into a cylinder with an open top. You can start to see the beginnings of a mug taking shape. So now I'm going to throw the wall. Now because this piece is going to be that tree bark texture, I'm going to leave it thicker than I normally would for a mug. She pinches the edges of the clay and lifts up as it spins, raising the sides of the mug. When she's happy with the height, Dolores brushes on some coloring, which she then dries with a heat gun. 
After that, she turns on the potting wheel again and gently pushes out the belly of the mug, which rounds it. The material she painted on cracks as it stretches out, which gives the mug this incredible texture that looks like tree bark. After a few final details, she uses a wire to separate the mug from the wheel. And at this point, because everything is dry, I can simply lift this up with my clean, dry hands and place it on the wear board. And then now I need to do 35 more. <laughs> Dolores is part of the next generation of potters in the region. She's self-taught, primarily fires her work in a gas kiln, works in an urban center, and is really active in selling her work online. She's been turning clay into beautiful things for 10 years, starting when she was straight out of college. And it's taken a lot of that to figure out how to make her work a business that, you know, pays the bills. Part of um, making functional wear as, as a job is you have to make stuff that works for you, but also stuff that works for the public. So you have to find a balance. And that tension is something probably all creatives face, staying in business and staying true to their voice. I have a goal to get to a point where my work is like crunchy granola. So like you, like someone just pulled it out the ground and here's your mug. It feels like it came from the earth. But right now I'm towing this balance of um, making sure that my pieces are appealing to people who don't want something that's heavily textured and very natural with a lot of browns. Dolores wouldn't say her pottery is in the traditional folk style of the state. But the North Carolina tradition isn't just about aesthetics. It's about the communities that have grown up around the craft. In Seagrove, the center of so much pottery in the state, potters are making all different kinds of styles. And as the founder of Durham's first Black-owned community pottery, Dolores says fostering and widening that community is really important to her. Seeing other potters in the studio go out to markets and sell made me think that it was possible. And I think that's a beautiful thing to see the representation of what you're trying to do. And it's partially what we do here. There are students who come in, it's like, hey, I saw you. And I'm like, just because I saw you, I think it's possible for me to do it. And it's like, yes, welcome in. And let's get you on the wheel. These plates, this whole pile, these piles, I should say. Glenn Hinson is part of the pottery community, not as a maker, but as an admirer. He's the kind of pottery collector who's more likely to buy the potter's favorite piece, even if most customers pass it over. When you walk into his home, you're immediately greeted by a long line of giant pots. They stand proud in front of windows that line the hallway into the main living space, which holds more pots. I wanted to talk with Glenn not just because he's a fan and collector of North Carolina pottery, but because he teaches folklore and anthropology at UNC Chapel Hill, just a half hour from Mark's studio in one direction and Dolores's in the other. I had a question for him. Who cares about old plates? Every pot is an enacted story. Each piece is filled with its own kinds of meaning. So the clay of the earth, the shaping hands of the potter, the stuff which made the glaze, and the activities of the flame all come together. And you take out of that kiln a piece which is not only singular, but is a singular narrative about that combination. 
But he says the story of a pot doesn't end there. It then moves from a potter into the hands of a buyer. And so then the day-to-day use of those pots becomes a relationship building. It becomes a moment of every time you sit with a pot, think of the story of that pot. For both Mark and Dolores, the North Carolina clay they use is part of the aesthetic story they're telling. People talk about wine and certain foods as having terroir, the taste of a place. Of course, you're not going to eat a hand-thrown plate, but it evokes place in a similar way. And while Glenn is an admirer of all things handmade with the intention of a maker, he says it's not just those kinds of plates that have a story to tell. Things we eat off of that are special are special because they're storied and can be, to the outsider's eye, the most mundane of plates. But the fact that you have this plate because it was in your mother's house or your father's house or your grandmother's house means that that plate carries with it the memories of the meals and it carries with it thus the stories of those moments, those gatherings, those eatings. And I think that that, you know, you could stretch that and say, say there's probably truth to that even for the most disposable of plates when one thinks of plastic plates or paper plates. We've gotten pretty good at finding and telling the stories of food. You have the invocation of, well, this was farmed from such and such farm, and this cheese is from Chapel Hill Creamery down the road. And Food has moved recently from the stuff that is created into the stuff that is created in the stories of its creation. And when we think about plates, all of that storytelling is there, too. It just happens on a different timeline. The handmade plate joins the food in those narratives of creativity. It is a more silent piece of that equation, perhaps, because it sustains, whereas the food doesn't. Glenn wants us to recognize the stories in all of the plateware that surrounds us every day, fancy or not. And in recognizing them, that can enhance the experience of eating. Because in the end, when our food is gone, when we're gone... It's from our plates that people will learn about our foodways, our traditions. It was drizzling when I returned to Mark's showroom a month after the kiln firing. But the rain didn't diminish the energy of his fans, dozens of whom had shown up to browse and shop the new pieces. The new pots were gleaming. Big 60-gallon ones that come up to your waist, small bud vases, cups, mugs, plates, platters, bowls, each one unique, stamped with the number of this firing. 109, how do you feel? Uh, beautiful firing. I mean, we're extremely pleased with the results. I mean, it's, it always takes a little while once the pots come out of the kiln to get used to them. And I, I, I'm convinced that they change. It's not me and my attitude. It's just the pots actually go through a transformation. And uh, now, I mean, they're looking serene, stately, elegant, powerful, strong, rugged. The barn is full of uh, eager buyers, and they seem to be loving what they what's out. It's like a big celebration. People are just happy looking at beautiful objects. 
A couple in one corner put together a set of mugs for themselves. One woman shops for a wedding present. The atmosphere is mostly friendly, but I do catch a whiff of urgency. And later, when customers gather with friends eating off a Hewitt plate, they may recount the story of how they snagged it first, surrounded by the beautiful rolling clay hills of Chatham County. I end up buying a mug. Simple in some ways, just a few grooves etched around it, but wild in other ways, splotched and dappled by the salt Mark blew into the kiln. A few days later, I make a cup of lemon tea with a heaping spoonful of honey stirred in. I brought it back to my desk. Blowing the steam off the top of the mug, I had to pause. Holding it in my hands, I thought about the red clay running beneath my feet, the hot, dusty kiln 30 miles away, and the utter magic of transformation that Mark harnesses for me to sit and sip some tea. And you know what? I swear it tasted better for it. Wilson Sarah edits audio stories, manages people, and runs productions. Most recently, she was managing producer at Pushkin. Her work has aired on shows like Planet Money, Reveal, Marketplace, and The World. And she's been recognized by the Daniel Shore Journalism Prize and the National Edward R. Murrow Awards. A native of North Carolina, she enjoys gardening and playing the banjo. Fascinating. We thank Wendell Patrick for Gravy's theme music, Jazar for our donor music. Managing editor for Gravy and all other SFA media is Sarah Camp Milam. Olivia Terenzio edits All Things Podcast. My co-host, Mary Beth Lassiter, is our publisher. Join us for the SFA's Fall Symposium, October 20th and 21st here in Oxford, Mississippi. Together we'll ask the important question, where is the South? You'll hear from a roster of engaging speakers like Wake Forest Professor Derek Hicks, our guide to finding the South wherever we find the Black church. Plus, you'll eat and drink very well. Tickets are on sale now. Visit southernfoodways.org to learn more about the Fall Symposium and purchase your ticket. While you're there, become a member or make a donation. Your dollars fund our work and help us make more gravy. I'm Melissa Hall. I'm Mary Beth Lassiter. Excited to lap up another episode of Gravy? Tell a friend. Pass the gravy boat. There's plenty to go around. <laughs>